Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu. You're listening to the Qalam Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lives of the Prophets by Mufti Hussein Kamani. Before we get into the session, I wanted to share a quick message with you all. Alhamdulillah, since 2011 until now, we have made a commitment here at Qalam to the podcast. All of our instructors are on the Qalam Podcast contributing, recording, and delivering different series and sessions to you. So that no matter where you are, what's going on, you are able to continue to learn and grow and increase the understanding of your religion. What we ask you to do, aside from continuing to listen and sharing the podcast with family and friends, is go to supportqalam.com. Supportqalam.com. Go there and be a part of the cause. Get your own stake and share in the reward of all the good that is going on and be a part of the solution. Go there, donate, be a part of the solution, share the link with family and friends, and be, let's all of us work together to bringing the proper understanding of Islam and the education of the religion to all the people all around the world. Jazakumullahu khairan. Thank you very much for listening. Now on to the session. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim Alhamdulillah Alhamdulillahi wa kafa Wa salamun ala ibadihin ladhin astafa Khususan ala sajidi rasuli wa khatam al-anbiya Wa ala alihi l-askiya wa ashabihi l-atqiya Amma ba'd This class, Lives of the Prophets Is a class that Alhamdulillah was started some time back However, unfortunately, in the middle, there was a need to take a break because I relocated from Chicago to Dallas. And it's been almost two years since I've taught this class. In our last lesson two years ago, we were talking about the family of Sayyidina Ibrahim And in our last two classes, we spent a class discussing the life of Sayyidina Ismail and also a class on the life of Sayyidina Ishaq Naturally, many would assume that the next class would be on Sayyidina Ya'qub because he was a son of Ishaq However, before discussing Ya'qub life, I felt the necessity and the need to discuss the life of the Prophet who came before Ya'qub and also before Ishaq and Ismail He was the nephew of Ibrahim Someone whose mention was also made in our previous class, whose name was Lut alayhi salam, Sayyidina Lut alayhi salam. Lut alayhi salam is mentioned in the Quran on multiple occasions. Many surahs mention the story of Lut alayhi salam. Some mention Lut alayhi salam's story in more detail, while others with brevity. We find in Surah Hud, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions. Lut story with some detail. We find in um, Surah Hijr, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions Lut story with detail. And there are many surah like this that mention even in Surah An-Kabut. Lut was the nephew of Sayyidina Ibrahim His father's name was Haran. And he was born in a city near Babel which is located in Iraq. Since he was the nephew of Ibrahim 
from a young age, he grew up under the mentorship of Ibrahim salam. He was always with him, always listening to him. The stories that Ibrahim salam mentioned, the Quran mentions regarding Ibrahim salam and the discussions he had with his father and how Ibrahim salam stood up to the community. It's very possible that throughout all of this, Lut salam was a spectator. He was there. He saw this all because he was Ibrahim salam's nephew. He was one of the first people to accept Islam at the hands of Ibrahim salam. Some Muarikhun historians, they say that the cause of him accepting Islam, in addition to all of the good advice he had heard from Ibrahim salam over the years, was that when the people launched Ibrahim salam into the fire, he also stood there wondering what will happen to this man. And then after a period, Ibrahim salam walked out of the fire unharmed. And it was witnessing this miracle that led him to believing in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He was, from, he was from the few people that actually migrated with Ibrahim salam. After the situation in Iraq became very difficult for Ibrahim salam, he made an intention to migrate and he migrated. He went from one part of the world to another part of the world and he traveled very far. On this journey was his wife Sarah and along with both of them was also their nephew Lut salam. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes reference to this in the Quran where he says, فَآمَنَ لَهُ لُوتُ وَقَالَ إِنِّي مُهَاجِرٌ إِلَىٰ رَبِّي And Lut also believed in him. And he said that إِنِّي مُهَاجِرٌ إِلَىٰ رَبِّي that I will migrate to my Lord. How far were they together in this migration? Some scholars say that they were together in Egypt. Some say they separated in Sham. However, it was during this migration that they both separated paths. Ibrahim and Lut started the Hijrah together. At some point, Ibrahim went in one direction and Lut went in another direction. The question now is that why did they separate paths? Why not stick together? Ibrahim had few followers to start with. It would be good if Lut stuck with him. So the reason why Lut left Ibrahim is something historians have discussed and they have disagreed on. Most Israeli riwayat, Judo-Christian narrations, they state the reason why they separated was because there was a dispute between Ibrahim and Lut They claim that when they migrated from their land and as they were going through these lands, they both had great flocks. And on these flocks, they had individually appointed their unique shepherds. So Ibrahim had his flock and he had shepherds watching over his flock. Lut had his flock and he had shepherds flock, uh, watching over his flock. The shepherds had disagreed over some issue on how to look over and maintain the animals. And this dispute grew to a point where there was a disagreement between Ibrahim and Lut Finally, they agreed that the best way for them to maintain their love was to separate and leave one another. Therefore, Ibrahim went in one direction, Lut went in another direction. As you can tell by the nature of the story, that Muslim scholars didn't buy it. And the reason is because we don't agree with this idea that prophets of Allah would argue and disagree over small petty things. In the Israeli tradition, this is very common. You'll notice in the tafasir of the Quran, those mufassirun that rely on Jewish traditions when interpreting the Quran as like a secondary or third degree or fourth degree source, 
when they quote those narrations, they seem very odd. It's as if constantly some prophet is in argument with someone else. Why did Ibrahim take his wife Hajar and drop her off in Mecca and separate her from Sarah? The Muslim version to the story is that it was the command of Allah. End of story, that's the end of it. The Jewish traditions, the Israeli riwayat, the, Jew, the Jewish and Christian traditions, they narrate the reason why he separated them both was because the two couldn't get along. So he left one in one part of the world and took the other to the other part of the world. Now if you ask the Muslim Mufassirun and Muwarrikhun, what was the reason why Ibrahim and Lut separated? We say that it was the command of Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted them to separate. They were both prophets of Allah, and there was a great need for Lut in a region in the world. It wasn't that they were arguing, so Allah told them to separate, and Lut went to taking care of his animals and his flock, and that's where he lived the rest of his life. No, there was a need for him. There was an instant, immediate need for him, because there was fasad and corruption spreading in the earth. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wished for Lut to go to those people and do da'wah amongst them and call them to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So now Lut heads toward the eastern region of Jordan, between Jordan and Palestine, to a place called Sadum. There were four or five major um, cities nearby, and they were all, unfortunately, um, caught with the same addiction. It's this Sadum, or in English we call it Sodom, where the Dead Sea lies currently. Some historians say that once upon a time, this area of water, the Dead Sea, was actually dry land, and it was on this land that these cities actually lived, these people actually lived right here. Regardless of whether it was this water that was land or not, without doubt it was on the coastal area of that Dead Sea that Lut and his people, the people of Sadum, uh, lived. Now the people that Lut was sent to, they had many issues. They had issues in believing in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, their morality was at low, they were people who were involved in corruption. But there were two things in particular that they were called out for in the Qur'an, that Allah categorized them with, that these were two problems they had. What were the two problems? Number one, they were highway robbers. They were highway robbers. If anyone passed by their city, anyone passed by in that region, they would keep an eye out, they would go to that person and they would steal their stuff. Now the Mufassirun actually even talk about how they would steal their stuff. They would come in large groups to this person and pick small pieces. Each person would take a little bit, take a little bit, take a little bit. When they would leave that person, that person would have nothing left. It wasn't like one person would come and steal everything. They say that a large group of them would come, a person would take a little here, a little there, like people do, unfortunately, when they go to supermarkets, when they go to a gas station, everyone picks up a little bit, little bit, and they steal like this. Kids do this. Sometimes, unfortunately, even adults do this, where they'll pick up a little candy, pick up a drink, and walk out quietly. So this is how they used to steal, sabil, And they became known for it. Businessmen amongst them would say that don't pass the people of Sadum or Amura, because if you pass by the people of Amura or Sadum, these people will steal from you. They'll rob you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions, أَإِنَّكُمْ لَتَأْتُونَ الرِّجَالَ وَتَقْطَعُونَ السَّبِيلِ In Surah An-Kabut, Allah talks about how these people would rob uh, um, the, the travelers. The second crime that they committed, which was a major crime, was they engaged in homosexuality. 
They were the first people to commit this sin so widely and accept it as a community. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala regarding them mentions in the Quran in Surah Al-A'raf, وَلُوطًا إِذْ قَالَ لِقَوْمِهِ أَتَأْتُونَ الْفَاحِشَةَ مَا سَبَقَكُمْ بِهَا مِنْ أَحَدٍ مِنَ الْعَالَمِينَ Oh, Lut السلام, when he said to his, to his people, do you engage, do you come to immorality such that the people before you from the world have never done before, they've never engaged in before. مَا سَبَقَكُمْ بِهَا مِنْ أَحَدٍ مِنَ الْعَالَمِينَ Some of them have gone so far with their desire of homosexuality that they began to engage in homosexual rape. And this is unfortunately a big disease. When the structure of family is lost, and when zina and homosexuality become common, the nafs, the inner soul of the human being, the lower self of the human being loses control. And rather than focusing on what's halal, the mind begins to desire what's haram. So it starts off with zina, which is sexual intercourse out of marriage, but then when the person isn't willing to engage in something that your nafs is boiling and, and really desiring at the time, this is where the human being transgresses and pushes their sin to an unthinkable place. And they engage in things like rape. That's why the Prophet ﷺ was very particular about the importance of maintaining family structure. That you must always learn to keep yourself in control. One of the missions of the Prophet ﷺ was to make nikah easy and zina hard. If nikah in marriage becomes easy, automatically people are no longer interested in zina because they have a halal avenue available. But if nikah in marriage becomes difficult, if people have so many formalities that getting married requires multiple years of saving and it just gets pushed out in this interim, in this period, now people, because the halal isn't available to them, they will resort to they will resort to haram. And that's when we find our youth engaging in things like pornography addiction and, and, and zina and so on. Parents and adults who claim that why do our youth have pornography addiction, they fail to address the solution. The actual solution was what? We as a community should have made nikah easy and they would have stayed away from haram. And unfortunately these addictions are such that even after marriage they don't leave because they're addictions. Addictions just don't leave one night. They don't leave one day. Once a person is addicted to something, unless they seek proper help and actively work towards stepping away from it, it remains with them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran says, Indeed, you come on to men with passion while abandoning Mindun and Nisa, while leaving women aside. Indeed, you are a people, you are a nation who transgress. Some people they assume that almost homosexuality in itself is permitted. What's actually prohibited is the rape in homosexuality. This is the claim, claim some people make. And I want to make it very clear right from the get-go, this claim is wrong. And I will address it later on uh, in more detail. But for right now, what I want to highlight, in this verse of Surah Araf, there is no mention of any rape at all. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about consensual relationships. That you, you come on to, you, you come to men out of passion and desire, 
and leaving your woman aside. There's no mention of any rape in this verse. It's the idea of two people from the same gender engaging in sexual activity that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is prohibiting. And then Allah closes the verse off by saying, بَلْ أَنْتُمْ قَوْمٌ مُسْرِفُونَ You are a people that transgress. You'll notice when it comes to the people of Lut salam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses many different uh, descriptions, descri describing them in evil. بَلْ أَنْتُمْ قَوْمٌ عَادُونَ You are people who transgress. Kafirun, fasiqun. Allah calls them fasiq, Allah calls them disbelievers. Because the action they engaged in had a very heavy weight and it had a social impact. See, there are some sins that a person commits, there are some acts that a person engages in, the harm of which impacts the individual. Do you guys understand? Like for example, I look at something haram. The harm of that affects who? It affects me as an individual. Okay. Then there are some acts that impact the society. Like for example, committing zina. This is not an act that just affects the individual. It has an impact, an indirect impact on, on the family structure. You will, now, you will now have kids who don't have fathers. Or the mothers may, be, may feel overwhelmed because they can't take care of this child because the child was born out of wedlock. And now you have a whole generation of people within our communities who have parents that have abandoned their children. And these children struggle significantly growing up because that parental guidance isn't there. So when it comes to sins that impact the society, the, the warning of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala increases. Lut warned these people and forbade them from their homosexual activity. He spoke to them with love and care. Lut was patient with them. It wasn't that he came said, guys, you guys are all going to hell, and walked out. That was not Lut's approach. He remained with them for a long period. Lut came when he was unmarried. He got married there. He had daughters there. The Quran talks about Lut daughters who were young, who had grown as well, Lut wife. This family of his was established while he was with the people in Sadum, in, in Amura, in these nearby cities. So Lut remained patient with these people. And this is the form of da'wah. No matter how immoral the act is, no matter how much you disagree with a particular act, if someone is doing something wrong and you wish to call them towards the right path, you have to be soft and easy and patient. In our community as Muslims, we will notice that there are many Muslims who have some homosexual tendencies and they have some homosexual inclinations. Now, one segment of our community will resort to just abandoning them and shunning them. That how dare someone have such an inclination we cannot let these people come to our parties. We cannot let these people come to our masajid. And this is a very dangerous place to be. This is a very dangerous line to walk. Because keep in mind that as Muslims, we don't do takfir based off of sins. That's something the Khawarij did, who are a deviant group. As Muslims, if someone commits a major sin, we don't call them kafir. Kufr has a very specific definition to it. There's a definition to what kufr is. And committing a sin does not constitute to that definition. Yes, homosexuality in Islam is viewed as a major sin, just as it's viewed in other religions as well. In Judaism, homosexuality is viewed as a major sin. In Christianity, homosexuality is viewed as a major sin. And in Islam as well, it's as if in these Abrahamic faiths, the common message was there that this was an act that you must stay away from at all costs. 
You must stay away from it. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost is, you stay away from this action. You don't go near it. Now, if a person does have a tendency and they have an inclination towards an act of such, what's our response as a community? And if we're going to say that we need to shun and throw people out who engage in major sins, then that should also be the case with people who commit other major sins. And there's a long list of major sins. Why is there a double standard? We need to be passionate. No one has ever done tawbah from a sin when they've been faced with roughness and harshness. That's not how tawbah comes. Tawbah comes, repentance comes by tapping on someone's heart, by knocking on someone's heart, by embracing someone, by showing someone that you care, by being there for them, you know, and helping them guide guiding them through that, 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 that phase in their life, that struggle in their life. Lut was calm and patient with his people. Ultimately, his patience did not bear any fruit. And it was his people that retaliated to his patience and his calmness with aggressiveness. And they became impatient with him. They became rough with him. They first threatened to expel him. They said to Lut unless you stop what you're doing, unless you stop getting involved in our business and leave us alone, this is our culture, this is how we live, this is how we party. Be a part of it or leave us alone. And if you continue to call us against it and keep telling us that what we're doing is wrong, we will kick you out of our city. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in Surah Araf, وَمَا كَانَ جَوَابَ قَوْمِهِ إِلَّا أَن قَالُوا أَخْرِجُوهُم مِّن قَرْيَتِكُمْ and Lut salam's people, when they responded to the call of Lut salam, they said, Take these people out of your city. This is your city. They moved here. They're not from here. They don't get to tell us what's right and what's wrong. Kick them out. These are people who love to be excessively pure. Meaning these guys are... They're calling towards a standard of living that we aren't interested in at this point in our life. Lut remained patient with them, but as a prophet, his responsibility was to continue to give da'wah. So it's not that you have to accept, you know, for example, if someone has a sibling or a child who, is, who, ha who claims that they have homosexual feelings, you don't have to say that I agree with you. You don't have to say that I agree what you're doing is right and I support you. You don't need to say that. What you can say to them is that what I believe regarding the act that you're engaging in to be wrong, however, as a family member, as a friend, I will be here for you for anything that you need. Do you guys understand? It's what some scholars have coined and called dislike the sin, not the, not the sinner. Dislike the sin, not the sinner. You don't need to dislike the sinner until the sinner becomes one who propagates the sin. Then at that point, we also have a problem with the sinner. Because they're no longer just calling towards the sin, now they're promoting it. And if you remember, in our class on the Arba'een, when we talked about the hudud and kafarat, I mentioned that it wasn't the sin that people were being punished for in Islamic court, rather it's them propagating, promoting the sin that the punishment stood for. When a person begins to promote and propagate a sin, then the situation changes. If a person does decide to make tawbah at some point in their life, Today they're stuck with some sin. Maybe they're involved with drugs or whatever the case may be. They may be involved with some sin. And everyone in the community abandons them. Tomorrow if they want to do tawbah, who do they even reach out to? How do they connect back to the masjid? How do they come back to the halaqah when the whole community 
has been so judgmental with them. And unfortunately, human beings are very quick at abandoning. We fail to think of our own sins and how many major sins we engage in, but we're very quick at being judgmental. Imam al-Ghazali talks about this. He says that if you ever want to see the importance of husnul dhan and good thought in our society, ask yourself if the world around you knew of your sins, what would you want for them to do? Let's say, for example, there's a person in the community who was caught popping some pills. Pills that generally people shouldn't be popping. Now, if people saw this person in the masjid just putting down a few pills, and everyone saw this person, as a person taking the pills, what would you want? What would you think of immediately? I hope that these guys think that it's medicine. You guys understand that? I hope that these guys think that it's, that it's medicine. Husnul dhan. You would hope that that person has good thought for you. Regardless of whether you were doing it with the wrong intention or right intention, immediately you would want good thought. Because if those people do not offer you a good thought, you'll be disgraced and you'll be destroyed in society. Who will you stand in front of? With what face will you stand in front of people? So everyone needs to offer husnul dhan to other people, to have good thought of other people. That in Imam Ghazali says, if you want to understand the importance of this, ask yourself when you commit sins, how much do you want people to think good of you? And if everyone thought bad of you for every sin that you committed, if everyone abandoned you every time you committed a sin, if people called you out and started being awkward towards you and excluded you from their gatherings, would you continue to love them or would you hate them? And this is where a person who has uh, a personal conflict with their sexuality and their morality transitions to hating and disliking God. They go from committing a sin to leaving Islam and being at the brink of kufr. Because the community has abandoned them. The community has refused to sit with them. They've no longer been welcome to the masajid. So we as a community have to learn and understand that we have a responsibility to be loving and welcoming to all. Now I've, been, I've already explained the exclusions. Now if someone comes to the masjid, there's someone who uses drugs and comes to the masjid. That's one scenario. The second scenario is he starts handing out drugs and dealing with drugs in the masjid. That's a different scenario. At this point, we tell this person, what do you need to do? Either stop dealing those drugs or you need to stop coming to the masjid. This person is coming to the masjid and they have such a high influence that the people of the masjid fear that this person's influence might impact other people and other people might be inclined to this person just by their presence. That's a different scenario. But generally speaking, we don't close the doors on people who are drug addicts, people who commit zina, people who, even someone who's committed murder. As the Prophet tells us, Allah says, And then, Allah does not pardon a person making partners with him. That's if they die in the state of shirk. But every sin other than, other than shirk is forgiven by Allah. Every sin other than shirk, having partners with Allah, um, associating partners with Allah, every sin other than that is forgiven by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can forgive and the crime is committed against him, then who are we to say that we refuse to forgive? These are some thoughts that I want us all to reflect over. Lut did not stop. He kept inviting people even after they threatened to expel him from the city. At this point, they said to Lut that if your Lord is as powerful as you claim he is, then we demand that your Lord show us his punishment. 
tell your Lord, bring his punishment on. We'll see how strong he actually is, what he can do to us. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah An-Kabut, فَمَا كَانَ جَوَابَ قَوْمِهِ إِلَّا أَنْ قَالُوا اُتِنَا بِعَذَابِ اللَّهِ إِنْ كُنْتَ مِنَ الصَّادِقِينَ They responded back by saying, tell your Lord to bring his punishment if you are from the truthful people. It's at this point that Lut made dua to Allah. رَبِّ نَجِّنِي مِمَّا يَعْمَلُونَ Oh my Lord, save me from the evil that these people do. When Allah subhanahu, when, when he made this dua to Allah, Ya Allah, save me from the evil of these people, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent some angels to destroy the people of Lut These angels were heading towards the people of Lut and on the way to Sodom, they stopped over to meet Ibrahim Ibrahim saw these angels who were in the form of young, handsome, beautiful men. They looked as if they were travelers. He didn't recognize them. And Ibrahim was known in his time for being generous and hospitable. Someone asked, Ibrahim, someone asked one of the scholars that how did Ibrahim become Khalilullah? How did he become the close friend of Allah? And that scholar responded back by saying, by hosting guests. They say in his home, he had a door on each wall, so guests can come from any direction into his home. There was an entrance from anywhere. You could just come in my house. They say regarding him, that he wouldn't have a meal without a guest. And at one point, three days passed by and no guest had come and he was hungry, waiting to share his meal with someone. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to feed him, sent an angel in the form of a human being. And the angel joined him for that meal. Ibrahim salam sees these angels and as it was his desire, something he enjoyed. He took an animal, a calf, he slaughtered it. And then what did he do? He kind of roasted it. He baked it, he roasted this animal. And he presented it to them. Ibrahim salam, when he hosted people, it wasn't a very light meal. When he hosted, how did he do it guys? He went all out. It was the barbecue that he came out with. Now when he presented this meal in front of them, these angels did not show any interest in the food. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us this in the Quran. That he presented the animals to them. And they did not show any interest. They kind of stepped back. They weren't interested in the food. Now first question is, who were these angels? Ibn Kathir narrates from Ibn Hatim who narrates with his Sanad Kanu Arbaatan, they were four angels Jibrilu, wa Mikailu, wa Israfilu, wa Rafailu That these were the four angels Jibril, Mikail, Israfil, and Rafail And then Ibn Kathir continues um, He quotes Qala, Nuh ibn Qaysta, Nuh ibn Qays says فَزَعَمَ نُوحُ بْنُ أَبِي شَدَّادٍ أَنَّهُمْ لَمَّا دَخَلُوا عَلَى إِبْرَاهِيمٍ قَرَّبَ إِلَيْهِمُ الْعِجْلِ That Ibrahim السلام, presented to them the, the, uh, the calf. فَمَسَحَهُ جِبْرِيلُ بِجَنَاحِهِ Jibreel السلام, he took the corner of his wing and he touched that, that roasted calf. فَقَامَ The calf stood up. يَدْرُجُ حَتَّى لَحِقَ بِأُمِّهِ يدرج, it began to walk until it joined its mother. الدار, and the mother of this, uh, of this um, calf was in the house. And this is why Ibrahim salam, was so worried. 
You know, the ayah says that when they refused to eat, what happened to Ibrahim alayhi salam? فَقَرَّبَهُ إِلَيْهِمْ قَالَ أَلَا تَأْكُلُونَ فَأَوْجَسَ مِنْهُمْ خِيفَةً قَالُوا لَا تَخَفْ They said to him, don't fear. So the Mufassir ibn Kathir says, the reason for the fear was this miracle that he saw. He wasn't sure what was going on. Who were these people? What were these angels doing here? Was this some miracle happening? Now I want you to note that when the Mufassirun share these tafasir and these narrations, they're not quoting Bukhari and Muslim. They're not quoting the most authentic narrations. And neither do they need to because these narrations are more to do with history. And in history, if you read um, the usul of tarikh and how scholars narrate tarikh, they don't necessarily rely on only robust and authentic narrations. And this is something that I've discussed already in this class at the beginning when we started off the series um, some time back. But I just wanted to repeat that again. قَالُوا لَا تَخَفْ أي قَالُوا لَا تَخَفْ مِنَّا إِنَّا مَلَائِكَةٌ أُرْسِلْنَّا إِلَىٰ قَوْمِ لُوتِ لِنُهْلِكَهُمْ And then at that point, those angels, they exposed their identity to, Lut, to Ibrahim salam, and they said that we are angels who have been sent to Lut salam, and his people will be destroyed. It was at that point when Ibrahim salam heard that these people were heading towards Lut salam, and uh, they were going to destroy the people of Lut salam, that his wife Sarah was there, she began to laugh. Fadahikat. What does the ayah say? When she heard that these angels were going to punish the people of Lut she began to laugh. Now there's a question here. Why would someone laugh if the angels just said we are going to destroy a people? This is a question the Mufassirun asked. Why was Sarah laughing? Qatada says the reason was because Qatada says the reason for them laughing was that these people were being so arrogant and demanding for Allah's punishment and here Allah's punishment was on the way. And she was laughing because they challenged Allah and Allah was sending the punishment down. She was laughing at them because of how arrogant and how uh, foolish they were. According to another narration, she laughed because Ibrahim salam was scared all along without realizing that these were angels and nothing to be afraid of. So because Ibrahim salam was afraid of something that didn't need to be uh, fearful of, she laughed at that. Do you guys understand? It's like a person holding a gun. If I go up to Adil and I hold a gun behind him to his head and I say, Adil, give me all your money. And Adil gives me all his money and then his wife Rabia walks in and she sees that it's a water gun I'm holding to his head. So what will she do? She'll probably end up laughing. Why? Because he was fearful of something that didn't need to be feared. So that's why it's possible, one of the reasons why she laughed, because Ibrahim was afraid of them and all along these people were angels. There was no need to be fearful of them. That's another explanation. Some scholars say the reason why she laughed is because in that gathering she was given glad tidings of a child. She was old, he was old. Ibrahim was very old at this point. And Sarah had given up hope on a child. Ibrahim was over 90 years old. Over 90. So Ibrahim Sarah had given up. There's no chance I'm going to have a child. And then she was given glad tidings that Allah is going to give you a child. Therefore, what did she do? She kind of laughed a little bit. But this interpretation isn't right. And the reason why the Mufassirun say this interpretation is wrong is because after she laughed, then Allah says, فَضَحِكَتْ فَبَشَّرْنَاهَا بِإِسْحَاقِ Allah says she laughed 
And so then we gave her glad tidings of Ishaq. So she laughed before she was given glad tidings. You guys understand? So that couldn't have been the cause. Al-Awfi quotes from Ibn Abbas that dhahiqat here is in the meaning of hadd. That right before she was given the glad tidings, the ayah says dhahiqat, and I translated dhahiqat as laughing. But Ibn Abbas says here dhahiqat is in the meaning of hadd, which means she began to menstruate. She was extremely old, way into her menopause, but she began to menstruate. And she must be wondering, what is going on here? Ya waylata ana ajuzun, wahada ba'li shaykha. I'm old, my husband's an old man, and here she's menstruating. Fabashsharanaha bi ishaq. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then gave her glad tidings of a child she would receive, uh, Ishaq alayhi salam. The interesting thing is, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't give them glad tidings only of a child, He gave them glad tidings of a grandchild too. وَمِن وَرَاءِ إِسْحَاقَ Yaqub. Not only did he give her glad tidings of a child, he gave her glad tidings of a grandchild, Yaqub salam. And inshallah in our next class, we'll talk about Yaqub salam and discuss his life as well. Ibrahim salam, after hearing that these people were going to punish the people of Lut salam, he started engaging and somewhat arguing and debating with the angels that give them more time. Give the people of Lut more time. Don't send your punishment to them. Stop. Don't go. This shows us how much mercy prophets have for mankind. Even though the act they did called on the punishment of Allah, they invoked the punishment of Allah. Allah had already sent the angels for punishment. And what is Ibrahim doing in the last second? He's trying to turn the angels away. فَلَمَّا ذَهَبَ عَنْ إِبْرَاهِيمَ الرَّوْعُ Allah says in Surah, Ibrahim, Surah Hud فَلَمَّا ذَهَبَ عَنْ إِبْرَاهِيمَ الرَّوْعُ وَجَاءَتُ الْبُشْرَةِ يُجَادِلُنَا فِي قَوْمِ لُوت What does Allah say? يُجَادِلُنَا فِي قَوْمِ لُوت Ibrahim alayhi salam started debating and arguing with the angels regarding the people of Lut alayhi salam إِنَّ إِبْرَاهِيمَ لَأَوَّاهُنْ حَلِيمٌ what is forbearant? Forbearant is someone who has the ability to take revenge and doesn't take revenge. A patient person is someone who doesn't have the ability to take revenge. Someone punches me, I don't have the ability to punch them back, that's sabr, what am I gonna do? Someone punches me, I have the ability to punch them back and I don't. This is what we call hilm, forbearant. Inna Ibrahima lahalimun. The reason why Ibrahim was trying to repel that punishment from them is because he had a characteristic of hilm. He knew that Allah had the ability to seek revenge, and he was saying, Ya Allah, don't do it. The angels in response, they said what? Ya Ibrahim, a'rid an hadha, innahu qad ja'a amr rabbik, wa innahum atihim adabun ghayru mardud. Oh Ibrahim, leave the subject. There's no need to engage in debate. Because the punishment of Allah has come. And now a punishment has come, the promise of Allah has come, and now a punishment has come that cannot be turned away they will face this punishment. Then Ibrahim salam, in a last ditch effort to try to stop the punishment, he said, Inna fiha luta. He said, you're going to drop Allah's punishment on those people and amongst those people is my nephew Lut salam. So don't send the punishment there, stop the punishment. My nephew Lut who was innocent won't be caught in this punishment. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Ankabut, قَالُوا نَحْنُ أَعْلَمُ بِمَنْ فِيهَا 
The angels responded back by saying, we know who's in that city. If you know Lut is in that city, Allah also knows Lut is in that city. That we will save him and his family except for his wife. Lut was saved, his wife was saved, sorry, his, he was saved, his family was saved, his wife was not saved. Now you're probably wondering, what did his wife do that was so bad? We'll discuss that, inshallah, shortly. These people then arrive to Sodom. These angels now arrived where? Sodom, to Sodom. Ibn Kathir writes that these angels arrived and they approached the area where Lut lived. The story of Ibrahim is done and the time for the punishment is getting very close. Qala Suddi, Ibn Kathir says that Suddi, famous Mufassir uh, of the Quran said, that the malaika and the angels left um, from Ibrahim السلام, and they approached the city of Lut They came to the Nahar, the river of Sadum. What time of the day? Midday. They met the daughter of Lut السلام, who was watering the animals, who was giving water to the animals. They said, Oh young lady, is there a place for us to stay? So she assumed that these people were travelers and they needed a place to stay. She said to them, stay in your place. Until I come back. Don't go anywhere. You guys stay here. They were outside the city. She was giving water far away from the city by the Nahar. She saw these young men. She said, you guys stay here. Don't go anywhere. I'll come back to you. وَفَرَقَتْ عَلَيْهِمْ مِنْ قَوْمِهَا Anyone that was coming in that direction where those guests were, she pushed them away. She turned people away. فَأَتَتْ أَبَاهَا She came to her father, Sayyidina Lut فَقَالَتْ يَا أَبَتَاهَ She said, oh my father. أَدْرِكْ فِتْيَانًا عَلَى بَابِ الْمَدِينَةِ مَا رَأَيْتُ وُجُوهَ قَوْمٍ أَحْسَنَ مِنْهُمْ لَا يَأْخُذُهُمْ قَوْمَكَ She said, oh my father, there are some young men outside the city. I have not seen people so beautiful. And unless you go and save them, our people will, they will attack them. Because their passion for homosexuality grew to the point where either it was consensual or it was by force. You weren't going to get away if these people were attracted to you. Sorry, sorry. Um, now, what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes mentions of this in the Quran. The people of Lut salam knew that Lut salam did not like their homosexuality. And they also knew that in the past he had a track record of turning people away from the city who were handsome and beautiful because he knew that these people would act with them inappropriately. So what they had done, they placed a ban on Lut salam That you are not permitted to host any men. You can only host women. Allah makes mention of this statement of theirs in the Quran. So, Suddi continues, That they said to, the people said to Lut that you are not allowed to host any men. If any men come to our city, leave them to us. We will take care of them. We will host them. 
Ibrahim um, Lut secretly approached these people, these guests. فَلَمْ يَعْلَمْ بِهِمْ أَحَدٌ إِلَّا أَهْلُ بَيْتِهِ He secretly brought them into the city and entered these people into his home. No one knew about the arrival of these guests except for Lut and his immediate family. Now you were wondering why Allah's punishment was destined also for his wife. This is why. His wife secretly left the home because she saw these people and she knew that her people would be very happy if she told them about these people. She did not believe in Lut and she was still stuck to her people and her tradition and was obsessed with finding different ways to please her people so she can get their praise. The scholars, they mentioned that Lut wife was not engaged or involved in these sexual deviations herself. Her problem was what? She liked to please the people of her community. So when she saw Lut hidden secret, these guests, she went to the people she went to her people and she informed them that we have these guests in our home. As Allah says in the Quran, these people then came rushing. Uh, they, they also, as in the Quran, Allah says in another place, they came with, with joy and happiness. They came rushing to Lut salam's home. Yuhra'una means yusri'una ilayh. They came quickly and rushing towards the house of Lut as soon as Lut saw all of these people rushing towards his home, he became worried because he knew there was only one thing on the mind of his people. And the people of Lut were infatuated with beauty. Now this is where some liberals have deduced from the story of the angels and the people of Lut that this story very clearly indicates that there was rape involved. And it's true. These people were trying to impose themselves on these angels if they were able to do so. And they say the punishment of Allah came because of the rape and their intention, their ill intent, their intent of rape with these angels. Do you guys understand? Some people, they interpret these verses of Lut by saying what? It's not the homosexuality that caused the punishment of Allah to come upon the people. It's not the sodomy. What was it actually? It was the intent of rape and they refer to these verses. Because from the story of the angels you can see, what their intent was and where this was going. Yes, it's true with the angels, that was their intent, but the warning of Allah and the punishment of Allah had already come long before these angels arrived. Yes or no? Look at the ayat of the Quran that talk about how Lut engaged with these people and talked with these people long before these angels arrived. And it was in a very um, general sense that Lut warned these people if they engage, you come to men, you come to men, in a very general form. Lut was warning his people that if you engage in this action, the punishment of Allah will come on you. So it's not limited just to rape. And how we know this even further is because of the teachings of the Prophet The Prophet forbade men and women having sexual interaction with the same gender, regardless of rape or not. Rape is a whole different level of punishment because that's just, you know, horrible. That's just extremely horrible. But the act itself was forbidden by the Prophet This is how the Sahaba understood it. And that's why I always tell people that people who want to push faulty interpretations of the Quran and the deen into Islam, they do it by supposing and imposing connotation of verses that in reality don't exist. 
The reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded women to do hijab was because rape was very common. Are you kidding me? Someone dare rape someone in a society that is based on tribal ego, tribalism, and watch what happens to you. Do you guys understand that? In Mecca, the society was based on what? Tribalism. Someone dare touch another lady, forget about rape, what would happen to that person? The people of that tribe would chop that pe person into small pieces, they would make minced meat out of that person. You wouldn't dare. The Prophet ﷺ society did not have a rape problem. There was no such thing during that time because this was an act that was unimaginable. How dare someone touch someone from another tribe and think that they're going to live to see even one more day. People, they impose faulty assumptions on, on the seerah and on the ayat of the Qur'an. So the best way to create faulty interpretations of the Qur'an is to divorce it from the sunnah. Because if you read the story of Lut in light of the teachings of the Prophet and the understanding of those teachings and the interpretation of these verses by the Sahaba, you will find a very clear narrative. And that is that this particular act is forbidden in Islam. These people came to the house of Lut and they started banging on his door. They kind of mobbed his home. They were everywhere. They were banging on his door saying, open the door, open the door. You violated the, the prohibition. You have men guests with you and you will submit them to us. Lut began, began to plead with them. He asked them to please be respectful to his guest. Because when someone is hosting a guest, now they're in your responsibility. And in previous times, there was a lot of honor and dignity that went with hosting guests. And he made it very clear that you should step away. And these people were insisting that no, we're going to do what we want to. And there was a struggle that Lut had with his people. Lut he appealed to them and he said to them, is there not one person of intellect amongst you who understands what you're doing? Not only do you want to engage in this haram act, but you are violating my honor by forcing yourself upon my guest. He said, Alaysa minkum rajulun rashid. Is there not an intelligent person amongst you who understands how horrible of an act you're doing right now? And this is what happens to people who are possessed by, you know, their sexuality. That they forget all barriers. Every sacred relationship turns into something sexual. Every important, every normal relationship turns into something sexual. Their mind is stuck in what we call the gutter. What happens to these people? Their mind is stuck in the gutter. And all things that are honorable are now gone. We find this in religious cult clergy, that you find religious people molesting young children. Young children are being sexually molested. When you think to yourself that how dare someone who claims to believe in God and love in God, love God, to carry the love of God in their heart, how would this person in a place of worship touch an innocent child? Do you guys understand? But when a person's sexuality consumes them, all barriers come down. And if the religious can't hold themselves back, if the taqwa of God can't hold back the religious folk, then what about those people who have no sense of religiosity? There are so many women in our community as well, unfortunately, and outside our Muslim community as well, as a part of our greater society that we live in, who are calling out that we are being sexually abused. Who will come to help us? And you turn to society, and the people that claim, the people that claim that we stand for the rights of women, 
and that we are a part of the Me Too movement, we stand against women that are being sexually abused, are so okay with pornography being available to the hands of every young child. The dichotomy, the, the, the double standards are, are gobsmacking actually. They're shocking. The same liberal group that claims that we are fully in favor of women's rights. Women are being sexually abused. Women in our time have been sexually objectified. Are you guys with me? This is their claim. This is the roar. But when the conservatives say that one of the possible problems is the common consumption of pornography, there needs to be limitations, some restrictions. We need to be able to control the um, pornography traffic in our society. The very same liberals who are claiming that the conservatives are not fair and are, are, are somehow supporting um, sexual abuse against women. Now when the, the conservatives provide a solution, the liberals say immediately that you are, you are controlling us and this is against our, our rights and we want free access to the internet and, and so on and so forth. I'm not trying to push the agenda of the liberals or the conservatives. I'm just trying to say that there are, we have a big mess in front of us. We have a massive mess in front of us. And we can talk about all the, uh, all the sexual abuse that happens, but unless we're willing to sit down and talk about the root, the problem, and there are many women and many men, academics, liberals, and conservatives that have come to the table and talked about the actual problems. One of the greatest problems being homosexual, I'm sorry, pornography. That this massive consumption of pornography has left our society broken. It's destroyed our society. People have lost their ability to love someone genuinely, beyond just a sexuality. You know, romance has left the heart of people, and all we're surrounded by now are beastly animals. Lut calls out to his people, who are also caught in this fever of passion. Alaysa minkum rajulun rashid. Is there not one intellectual and one smart person amongst you? Now, Lut he then said that if you insist, if you insist, Lut salam said to him, said to the people, Ya qawmi ha'ula'i banati hunna atharu lakum, fattakullah wa la tukhzuni fi dhaifi alaysa minkum rajulun rasheed. He said, oh my people, if you must, if you insist, then here are my daughters, they are more pure, they are more pure for you. Be conscious of Allah and do not humiliate me with my, with my guests. Is there not an intellectual person amongst you? Now the question after reading this ayah is, how can Lut offer his daughters to these rape-hungry people? Sounds a little weird. Yes or no? This is the, the objection the Mufassirun bring. That how can Lut offer his daughter to these people who are clearly immoral and are rape-hungry? Why would he offer his daughter to these people? Is something wrong? What are we missing here? So the scholars, they explain this by saying, they give multiple explanations. One of the explanations, which is the clearest and simplest explanation, that by daughters, he meant the women of the community. He's not referring to his own daughters. What is he referring to? That if you really are sexually so driven, if you can't control your carnal passion, if your libido is skyrocket high, then why don't you go and get married to the women in the community? And as an elderly person, as a prophet, the women in the community are like his, like his daughters. Ibn Kathir addresses this issue. He says, Yurshiduhum ila nisa'ihim. He is guiding them to their women. 
Because a prophet, in relation to his people, is like a, a father. So he guided them to that which was more beneficial for them in the world because by having sexual relation with their wives they can bear children, their community would go on, they would be able to procreate and it was halal and it would be beneficial for them, for them in the akhirah because they've saved themselves from a haram. And, and then he quotes um, an ayah of the Quran in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says uh, in Surah Shu'ara, أَتَأْتُونَ مِنَ الْعَالَمِينَ And do you abandon and leave men? Sorry. SubhanAllah. Okay. Um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Shu'ara, أَتَأْتُونَ مِنَ الْعَالَمِينَ That do you abandon men? وَتَذَرُونَ مَا خَلَقَ لَكُمْ رَبُّكُمْ مِنْ أَزْوَاجِكُمْ See, in this ayah, what did Allah say very clearly? What was that? وَتَذَرُونَ مَا خَلَقَ لَكُمْ رَبُّكُمْ مِنْ أَزْوَاجِكُمْ And you leave that which Allah created for you from your spouses. That's why they say that this ayah clarifies that ayah. Because here, what is Allah talking about spouses? Therefore, when there Lut says his daughters... Most likely, the interpretation, the proper understanding of that ayah is the daughters by there, what is he referring to? The women of the community. Some scholars say by mentioning his own daughters, he was giving an example that people from the opposite gender, that just as my daughters are from the opposite gender, there are other women from the opposite gender, you can go and engage with them. Now keep in mind, until this point, Lut had no idea that these guests of his were actually angels. In his mind, they are weak human beings who are travelers, who do not have any support, and the mob is about to tear them apart. That's where Lut is at this point. That's where he is. That's what he's thinking of. Lut at this point, he turned to them, and these angels said that there's no need to worry. Because those people, when Lut said to them that my daughters are available, they said, That we have no interest in your daughters. You know what we want. And we want that meat right there. We're after those guys. And then Lut responded back by saying, in Surah Hud, ayah number 80, Imagine a place of disparity and how sorry and how sad uh, Lut must have been when he made this statement. He said, only if I had against you some power or could take refuge in a stronger support. Again, by now, the angels have not exposed themselves. They have not told him who they are. Now there's a question here. Why did Lut ask for help from other than Allah? Because what did he say here? I wish I had support. Are you guys following? Why did Lut ask for help in other than Allah? The answer to this is there is nothing wrong with seeking help from the material as long as you've already invested in the dua with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Lut already made his dua that Ya Allah save me from the, what these people are doing. Oh Allah save me and protect me from, the act, from their actions. He already made his dua to Allah. So now he was saying, Ya Allah, your help is on the way, 
It's as if he's saying, Ya Allah, only if your help can come a little faster. Or if he was saying, Ya Allah, if there, were, if there was a physical support here, I would have been able to guide myself through this. And it was exactly at this point that the angels then exposed themselves. Ya Lutu inna rasulu rabbika lan yasilu ilayk. O Lut, they can't touch you. We are angels sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. فَأَسْرِ بِأَهْلِكَ بِقِطْعٍ مِّنَ الليل. At night time, you leave here with your family. وَلَا يَلْتَفِتْ مِنْكُمْ أَحَدٌ And do not turn back to see what happens. No matter how loud it gets, you guys don't turn around. إِلَّا مْرَأَتَكْ Except for your wife, she will turn around. And when she turns around, إِنَّهُ مُصِيبُهَا مَا أَصَابَهُمْ What they will be afflicted with will also hit her as well. إِنَّ مَوْعِدَهُمُ الصُّبْحِ They have been granted respite until morning. The promise will come in the morning. أَلَيْسَ الصُّبْحُ is the morning not near? And with this, the ayat then, then say what happened. Now regarding this, this issue of Lut salam seeking help from other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's important to know that there is nothing wrong. There is nothing wrong with a person seeking help with human beings after they've already asked from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's why the Prophet ﷺ addressing this in, surah, in, in the Tirmidhi, in Surah Al-Tirmidhi says, as narrated by Abu Hurairah radiallahu rahmatullahi ala lutin. May Allah's mercy be upon Lut shadid. Only if he was able to rely on a greater support, a greater power. Ya'ani Allah Azza wa Who was he intending when he said greater power? Greater power? Allah. فَمَا بَعَثَ اللَّهُ بَعْدَهُ مِن نَبِيٍ إِلَّا فِي ثَرْوَى مِن قَوْمِهِ After Lut salam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never sent a prophet, but he was in, surrounded by a group of people from his nation. Yaqub salam was surrounded by people from his nation. Musa salam was surrounded by people from his nation. People who were there to support him. Tharwa means, فِي عَدَدٍ كَثِيرٍ مِن قَوْمِهِ A large group of people who were there to support him and, and help him. Now the punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes. The next morning when they wake up, the punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes. Allah Azza wa Jal says in the Quran, that the next morning, جَعَلْنَا عَالِيَهَا سَافِلَهَا وَأَمْثَرْنَا عَلَيْهِمْ حِجَارَةً مِّن سِجِّيلٍ مَنْضُودٍ مُسَوَّمَةً عِنْدَ رَبِّكَ وَمَا هِيَ مِنَ الظَّالِمِينَ بِبَعِيدٍ the next morning, Ibn Kathir says that فَأَخَذَتْهُمُ الصَّيْحَةُ مُشْرِكِينَ The first thing that happened was a loud scream went and it kind of like blew their mind out. A very loud noise. Mushrikeen early in the morning. They were early in the morning and the loud sound went and it blew their brains out. Then the next thing, Jibreel came in his form and he picked up these people by the corner of his wing. لَمَّا أَصْبَحَ نَشَرَ جَنَاحَهُ In the morning, Jibreel he took them by the corner of his wing. He lifted that land with everything. The castles, the, the, the flock, the stones, the trees, everything. He then wrapped it in his wing and he lifted them. And he took them so high. He took them so high that the people in the heavens, the angels in the heavens, the angels in the heavens, 
um, they heard aswat al-nasi wal-kilab. They can hear the sound and, uh, of the people of Lut salam screaming. And they could hear the dogs screaming. وَكَانُوا أَرْبَعَةَ alaf, And they were 4,000 people. This is Qatada's narration that Ibn Kathir narrates. They were how many people? ثُمَّ قَلَبَهَا And when they were that high, he then turned them over. فَأَرْسَلَهَا إِلَى الْأَرْضِ مَنْكُوسَ وَدَمْدَمَ بَعْضُهَا عَلَى بَعْضٍ The earth fell on them, and they fell upon one another. فَجَعَلَ عَالِيَهَا سَافِلَهَا And the top became the bottom. Right? The top became the bottom. The people that were on top were now at the bottom because a land came down on them. ثُمَّ أَتْبَعَهَا حِجَارَةً مِّن سِجِّيلٍ And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent upon them uh, stones made of, made of clay. Some narrations say that they were, it was cooked clay, very hard, like rock. Some scholars, they say they were not sijil here. They say it means they were small stones, not rocks, but small like pebbleish stones that came down upon them and they began to shower down upon them. And the riwayat mention, the verses of the Qur'an mentions that musawwama, meaning they were all marked. What does that mean? Some scholars, they say, Mufassirun, they say, they were marked with the names of the people that they were to hit. And they went to each of these people and they hit them one by one by one until all of these people were destroyed. Now there's a question here, someone can ask, that if Lut salam's wife can be disobedient and do what she did to please the people against her husband, does this not prove that a prophet can marry a sinful lady, a lady that commits sin? And by extension, does it prove that Aisha radiallahu anha may have committed zina? Because if Lut salam's wife can do this, can't the Prophet's wife do this? Do you guys understand the objection made here? This objection is made by a very specific group. Their objection is that they claim that Aisha radiallahu anha, the wife of the Prophet وسلم, committed, an immoral, committed an immoral act during the, wife, during the life of the Prophet And they say that it's possible. Uh, right, for even saying these alfad, these words. But they say it's possible and they base it off of what? If Nuh salam's wife and Lut salam's wife can be disobedient and be disbelievers, then why can't Aisha radiallahu anha do this? Now the first thing is that this claim is faulty all over. What did I say? The claim is faulty all over. Because there's a difference between not believing and being immoral. In the Quran, when Allah talks about al-khabithatul al-khabithin wal-khabithun al-khabithat, that khumuth there that Allah is talking about is sexual immorality. That a prophet's wife will never be sexually deviant. That's why the mufassirun are very clear that Lut salam's wife was not sexually deviant. She had another issue, which was that she was obsessed with pleasing her people, but she had no sexual deviancy. Because that would be inappropriate. The Prophet said, Every one of my forefathers was born through marriage, not through wedlock. Were there were forefathers of the Prophet ﷺ kuffar? Yes or no? Of course there were. But the Prophet isn't, taking, isn't boasting and saying that they were kuffar or Muslims because a person can be kafir or Muslim. But however, a human being, whether kafir or Muslim, from my lineage will always be moral. Do you guys understand the difference here? That's where the difference is. The wives of Nuh and Lut are mentioned in the Qur'an as an example. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Qur'an um, 
Allah gives an example of those who disbelieve. Allah gives an example to those who disbelieve of the wives of Nuh and Lut. They were under two of our servants, and those servants of our were righteous. They betrayed my servants. So nothing came in handy. And as I close off today's class in the life of Sayyidina Lut, I want us all to reflect over this. How unlucky these women were, Lut, Nuh, Allah says nothing helped them. Some of us boast over our lineage that I'm related to so-and-so, I'm a wife of so-and-so, husband of so-and-so, child of so-and-so. But if your deeds are not affected or impacted by those righteous people, then what are you happy over? If anything, you should be ashamed that my father was a great scholar and I couldn't live up to his example. My mother was a great scholar, I couldn't live up to her example. With that lineage also comes great responsibility. Don't rely on family ties, because if you refuse to benefit from their teachings, then what relationship are you actually boasting over? There are so many lessons to be learned from the story of Sayyidina Lut As Muslims, we are very bold when it comes to a matter of policy and principle. We don't choose what's right and wrong based off of the political sway of our current times. If the Supreme Court says that a particular thing is permitted, but the Quran says that thing is prohibited, as Muslims, our policy will always remain of the prohibition. Because our allegiance first and foremost lies, through, lies to revelation. It's through revelation that we determine our sense of morality, our sense of right and wrong. Right and wrong is not objective to us. It's not subjective, sorry, it's very objective. You know, the Quran tells us what's right. The Sunnah of the Prophet tells us what's right. They tell us what's wrong. But as Muslims who live in a West, in a country that is not theocratic, the, the law in this country is not determined by theology, by religion, we appreciate and respect the law. We don't agree with it. We can be very bold, we should be very bold. As Muslims, if we ever are a part of a community discussion and people of multiple faiths are invited and you are one of those people and someone asks you, what is your thought on homosexuality? What does Islam say on homosexuality? It's your responsibility to be very bold and blunt, be very honest. Because it's not our religion to choose. We don't get to manipulate. We don't get to decide what's right and wrong. But with that said, once we say something's haram, we're not done talking. Because in Islam, the hukum is one thing. How we approach it is a whole different thing. How we Muslims approach sin, how we approach people who do wrong, how we approach immorality is very different. We don't shun people. We don't push people off. We are kind and loving. We appreciate, understand, we show empathy, we show forbearance, we show patience, we show kindness, we keep our hand out, we don't pull it in. These are the teachings of the Prophet And this is the approach that we will take. Look, is it possible to respect someone while you disagree with them? Yes or no? Look, as minorities in America, the Muslims work very close well the, with the LGBTQ community when it comes to policy. True or false? Yes or no? True, okay. Are all members of the LGBTQ, Muslims, uh, LGBTQ movement Muslims? Yes or no? Are they Muslims, yes or no? If you ask them, do you believe in Allah and Muhammad what will they say? Many of them will say, 
No. But when it comes to political affairs, are they still willing to respect? Yes or no? So is it possible for someone to disagree with someone yet be respectful to them? Yet still work with them? Yet still be able to engage with them? Is that possible? If anything, the LGBTQ community is showing us how to do it. That you don't have to agree with us. You don't have to accept us. I mean, we'll accept you as people. We'll disagree with you. We won't become Muslims. We won't become Muslims. You don't need to become homosexuals. But as far as working together on certain causes or being kind, for, kind and understanding one another, that's something that people can definitely find a middle ground to work on. Um, just bear in mind that as a matter of policy, be very clear. I know many youth of ours who are involved with MSAs, they ask this question all the time that can I uh, work with the LGBTQ community in, uh, on X, Y, and Z project on, uh, on campus? Well, can, can you work? Of course you can work with anyone. You can work with Christians, you can work with Jews, you can work with anyone. But just be very clear as, a, as what your stance is on your issue if you are asked. The last thing you want is to work with someone and to somehow imply your consent to something while you don't give consent. Do you guys understand? And sometimes this can get very tricky, as we see with the um, MLI issue, okay? Or the BDS issue, may I say, okay? Where even working in conjunction with someone could be on an issue that's so sensitive that you standing side by side with someone can be, an can be viewed as consent implied. So these are very tricky waters. Um, in closing, two of my very close friends, someone who I, both who I consider very dear and beloved, they engaged on this issue academically online that what's the ruling of Muslims uh, working side by side with the LGBTQ community when it comes to political issues. And Dr. Jonathan Brown first posted his, his opinion and his research on the issue, someone who I consider to be close to me and someone that you know, I respect as well. And then after writing his opinion on the issue, he then requested, he requested Dr. Shadi al-Musri to respond and, re and write a rebuttal to his article. And at the request of Dr. Jonathan Brown, Dr. Shadi al-Musri wrote a rebuttal to Dr. Jonathan Brown. And both of them presented very a very beautiful perspective on how Muslims should deal with uh, the greater LGBTQ community as common minorities and as a part of a common political party working towards a particular direction as minorities. I definitely encourage those who have an interest in this subject to find these articles. I believe they were on the Yaqeen Institute website. Find these articles, read them, understand them, because they surely relate to a pertinent real issue that we face today as Muslims. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us, preserve us, guide us. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us from those who he loves, who are from his righteous and pious servants. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to be from those who read these stories, reflect over them, take lessons and implement them. Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillah, we've started our class. So if anyone wishes to catch up, because where are we taking off from? Lut alayhi salam. So there are a lot of prophets that we didn't cover um, in this class, in this masjid. If you wish to make up for the classes, and I definitely recommend you do. Um, these were very good classes, alhamdulillah, I had the honor to deliver uh, in Chicago. I encourage you to visit the Qalam podcast. If you're not sure what that is, just go to Google, type Qalam podcast, Lives of the Prophet. That's what this class is called. It's called Lives of the Prophet. You will find all of those lectures there.